Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome, history friends, patrons, all to, well, to something a little bit unprecedented and unique and really exciting over here at When Diplomacy Fails. Just before we begin, it's important I clarify something. This is not a regular episode of WDF. There is no history here. It's an episode reserved for several important announcements and bits of news that I've been sitting on for quite a while now. You may not think I need to clarify this, but judging by past reviews, some people get really cranky when they don't read the podcast title and have an episode like this as their first taste of when diplomacy fails. You have been warned. But that brings us to a key question. What exactly are these announcements and bits of news I've been sitting on, and why have I kept them secret for so long? How's the PhD going, Zach? Don't you realise this is several questions rather than just one? Well, first of all, hello there, history friend. Yeah, it's been a really long time since I did anything like this, since I did anything state of the podcast address like at, like in about two years, really. I've been releasing bi-weekly episodes of the Thirty Years' War like clockwork, and I am, I'm really, really happy, genuinely, that I managed to maintain this schedule, but it hasn't exactly been the most, the most personal experience, let's just say. If you've been listening here for a while, you might even feel like I've been a bit distant lately. Before we go any further then, I want to say that, well, I'm sorry for this space between us. And I want to thank you sincerely for sticking with this show, even during these difficult times. And you didn't just stick with When Diplomacy Fells. That's the incredible thing. You've continued to go above and beyond in your support of it too. Over on Patreon, despite my reduced schedule, we've maintained a really solid income level. And this income has been essential for paying the PhD fees and making this whole journey possible. I really do appreciate so much everything you've done. Even if you haven't even started looking or considering BFIT, you haven't joined the Facebook group, for example, this is your first time listening or something and you really wish I'd just get on with it. Yes, you, I'm talking to you. First off, join the Facebook group. Second, thanks so much. Even just by listening, whether streaming or downloading, you're helping to move the needle, and you're helping to make history thrive. With that out of the way, perhaps my inner Irishness won't let me proceed without thanking you all profusely for spending some time with me, but with that out of the way, oh boy, this, like, I always struggle with episodes like these because I kind of build them up in my head for a while, and I then, like, I find it difficult to just come out and say it, and 
not like give a drum roll or that kind of thing. And I'm not going to do a drum roll because that will really upset my microphone and these things are sensitive. But I will say this. I have something special. Well, several things really to make up for a shaky last couple of years. Put your patient caps on though, history friend, because I can't really explain what's in store for you and the wider world until I set a bit of background first. You know how much we love context, so I think it's important that we start the story. I'm releasing a historical fiction series set in the 30 Years War. It's going to be called Matchlock, a 30 Years War story, and you're going to love it, and I'm really, really excited, and there's going to be audiobooks, and, well, so much for the context. I'm sure you've got loads of questions right now, so now that I've whetted your appetite, I hope you're sitting down, and if you're not sitting down, then I at least hope that your blood sugar levels are stable. Yes, you heard me correct. On the 15th of September 2021, the first of what will be many installments in a historical fiction series will be released in ebook and paperback format to the world. Put a pin in the audiobook for the moment, because I will definitely have one, but fiction is a bit trickier than non-fiction, and I am in two minds about whether I'll record the book myself, or if I'll have a professional do it, because a professional can actually do accents. Let's just say, I'm as good at accents as I am at other languages. In other words, not very. I will go into the technical details regarding publishing in a bit, but I want to talk first about the story itself. What is Matchlock and the Embassy all about? And more importantly, how do you know if you'll even like the book or series if you've only ever heard me on podcasts before? Well, I can make things fairly simple for us by reading the blurb. That's what I'm going to do now. Better clear my throat dramatically for the sake of uh, the sake of setting the scene, but also not do it so close to the microphone that it sounds really gross and puts you off. <clears throat> Spring, 1622. Matthew Locke sets sail from Bristol, determined to learn the truth about the brutal murder of his parents. Armed with only vague instructions, he is watched and shadowed by forces more sinister than he could ever imagine. Guided by his father's mysterious legacy, Matthew Locke lands in The Hague, and prepares to go to war. His allies will consist of ruthless rebels and desperate soldiers, each one more brutal than the next, but with villainous rogues lurking around every corner, who can be trusted? To survive a terrifying conspiracy, and to save his family, Locke must lean on years of training in the arts of war. More than that, he must question his deepest beliefs, and confront the fears which have haunted him since childhood. Above all, he must become something else, He must become a legend. Matthew Locke must become Matchlock. At stake is nothing less than the heart and soul of Europe. Well, what did we think of that? If you've been paying attention in our 30 Years War class, you'll know that 1622 is really the beginning of the conflict. It's when the Elector Palatine's prospects were not particularly good, but Emperor Ferdinand had yet to bring in Wallenstein, the King of Denmark had yet to intervene, and Several big guns had yet to be fired. It's what's known as the Palatine phase of the war. It seemed to me like the perfect time to have an outsider enter the conflict and navigate its different actors while on a very personal mission of his own. Let's talk about the title. Matthew Locke is our protagonist, a 21-year-old Dorset native with a whole load of questions. But he's also got quite a lot going for him as well. Thanks to some traumatic events in his childhood, Locke took it upon himself to get to grips with the musket drill. As a result, he can fire that musket quicker than almost anyone else in England, and certainly in Dorset. 
Why did I have him based in Dorset, though? Or for those without a map of England in front of them, in England's southwestern coast. If you imagine the kind of tale of Cornwall, it's just before that tale begins, really. A major reason for basing him in Dorset is, and this is a common theme that we'll revisit many times in the future, it's because I have very fond memories of visiting Bournemouth as a child, a seaside town in Dorset. In 1622, Bournemouth didn't really exist, but as we'll see in later instalments, Dorset also happens to be a place where an awful lot of fascinating characters are also based. Example, Sir John Digby, Britain's ambassador to Spain for about 10 years, and the guy who was blamed by King James for the failure of the Spanish match policy. He lives just a stone's throw from the fictional Locksville estate. Digby's family inhabited the now famous Sherborne Castle, which I am told contains some exquisite gardens and is definitely on my visit list once Boris Johnson gets COVID and Brexit done. But back to Matthew Locke. And yes, it's no accident that his name can be conveniently fused together to make Matchlock. I allowed myself this ingenious but probably corny concession as I thought of it on a run and I just couldn't let go of it as an idea. For a time I had considered going with Blunt as a surname, largely as a nod to Sharp, I'm just that hilarious, but I like this name better. It's really grown on me and hopefully it'll grow on you too. So Matthew Locke is an expert with the Matchlock musket and he's on his way through a war-torn Europe in search of justice, but there's another element to it as well. You see, despite his extensive training and his passion for the musket, Matthew Locke is a talker rather than a fighter. Specifically, he's a graduate of Oxford, and thanks to his connections and the inspiration given by his father, which I'll talk about in a bit, Locke is a keen diplomatist, and he'll have to put his education and training to the test in his interactions with a wide range of characters, historical and fictitious, if he's to get to the bottom of things. Of course, I had to bring the diplomatic element into it, mostly because I longed for a historical fiction novel that watched our protagonist negotiate with history's finest statesmen. How else would I justify getting Matthew Locke and Cardinal Richelieu in the same room together? Trust me, this blend of soldier and statesman is the most effective, most exciting way to achieve my vision. It's also a very, very Zach Twomley way to craft a protagonist, because wouldn't you know it, Matthew Locke just happens to be interested in the same elements that I'm interested in. But that's the key thing with writing fiction. You have to write the book that you want to read. It's really the same principle that has underlined this podcast for nearly 10 years. Since May 2012, I didn't worry about whether my formula would be accepted, necessarily. I kind of just made the podcast that I was most excited to listen to. This should hopefully ease your fears if you're worried that Matthew Locke will just be going through battle after battle and the story will have no rhyme or reason to it. The political context of 1622 will be explained. And if nothing else, I'd love to see what you think of my attempt to break down the Thirty Years' War into terms that people outside of this podcast audience will understand. Because let's be honest, virtually nobody has heard of the Thirty Years' War. And on top of that, Literally nobody has given a character in the Thirty Years' War the so-called sharp treatment. Some fictional novels set in the period do exist, but they're completely unlike what I'm doing here. Maybe aspiring fiction writers have been scared away from the Thirty Years' War period altogether, understandably in my view. In that case, who better than this Thirty Years' War nerd to bring people into the era? It's like my years of obsessing over this conflict has set me up for this very series. 
It's really important to me that Matthew Locke and Matched Locke, the series, generally feels authentic. The career of the British soldier statesman during the Thirty Years' War is a fascinating one, and there's a wide range of figures from the period who really did go on this journey, serving in battle, absorbing the lessons of the era, and doubling as diplomats at the negotiating table. Despite Britain's weird relationship with the Thirty Years' War, its citizens engaged with that war, and for some, the war was their whole world. This is all to say that the character archetype of soldier-statesman isn't something I invented to suit myself because I like the diplomacy and warlike aspects of his character. In fact, it was a genuine career for many thousands of Irish, English, Scottish and Welsh figures at the time. My intention is to bring forward the research that's been done into those stories by weaving historical fact into Matthew Locke's fiction. Arguably the best way to make your historical fiction feel authentic is to ground the characters believably in the era, and we may look no further than Matthew Locke's father, Charles Locke, who made his name and the Locke family fortune by facilitating the Twelve Years' Truce between the Spanish and Dutch in 1609. But let's just say that there's more to Charles Locke than meets the eye. Charles and Catherine Locke's brutal murder, the inciting incident, to use the proper fiction term, which moves our Matthew to land in The Hague and set our story in motion, was not some random act. If only Matthew could connect the pieces together and learn the truth, perhaps he'll have some help along the way. And this brings us to the side characters. Upon learning of my choice for the protagonist, some English guy, you may be wondering why I didn't go the full Irish and select, for instance, the son of an exiled Gaelic chief from Ulster as my protagonist instead. After all, the Ulster plantations and the flight of the earls surely give us an ideal opportunity to look into this largely unexplored and underrepresented period. Well, don't worry, history friend. I've got you covered. Without giving too much away, I thought it would be better to have us navigate these Irish complexities through the eyes of Matthew Locke. In other words, Matthew Locke will be forced to team up with Flynn O'Toole, a mysterious, sarcastic, and proudly Irish second son of an exiled Gaelic Earl, who made his fortune serving in European armies. This gives non-Irish audiences a chance to see the Irish as non-Irish contemporaries might have seen them, while my valued Irish listeners won't be turned off by the usual Irish stereotypes of lucky charms and diddly eyes because... I actually understand my country, and for the record, we don't have that Lucky Charms cereal over here, unless you want to go and get it in a specialist's shop and pay like 10 American dollars for it. Not gonna happen. Also, the great thing about being Irish is that we natives can get away with slagging off our own, but you all can't. It is part of our charm, after all. Of course, the usual consequences of an Irish and an Englishman travelling together should be expected. How can they coexist? Will the national animosities take over? Just how sarcastic and impatient will this Flynn O'Toole character be? Any Irish listeners cringing right now? Well, if you're worried that the name is a little too on the nose with its Irishness, you may rest assured that even the name is grounded in fact. The O'Toole clan were entrenched in County Wicklow, which is the county just below Dublin. But there was an awful lot of this O'Toole clan, and many would have fought in Hugh O'Neill's armies during the 1590s, in Hugh O'Neill's War Against Queen Elizabeth. This helps explain how Flynn finds himself in Ulster. His father, seeking his fortune, accepts a grant of land in the region of Ulster itself in return for his service in the Irish army. 
This makes the consequences of England's eventual victory there all the more painful for Flynn and his peers. As a child, the young Flynn O'Toole leaves his beloved home and begins his new journey in foreign courts. Maybe you're more interested in Flynn's story now than in Matthew Locke's, in which case that's a good thing. As Flynn is a decade older than Locke, he's seen an awful lot of... Well, let's just say he's seen a lot of interesting things, and this shadowy past will be the subject of considerable intrigue. Can Matthew Locke trust him? Is the Irishman setting him up to fail, or worse? Grounding your characters deeply in the era, and shrouding them in questions that readers are burning to ask, this is how you build better historical fiction. But... Now we come to the part of the Thirty Years' War story which deviates somewhat from the historical record, and really, it was inevitable that this was going to happen. When I was thinking of how to approach historical fiction in the Thirty Years' War era, I knew that just me telling the story of the Thirty Years' War through someone's eyes wasn't going to be all that great. Now, as interesting as I and many others would find that, it has to be a gripping personal tale, or else those outside of the Thirty Years' War fandom won't stick around. With that in mind, I'd like to introduce you to... Dragons. No, I'm only kidding. (laughs) I really hope I got some of you. No, there's no dragons. Don't worry. But do me a favour instead and do a quick Google search of an item of clothing called a Vizard. And that's spelt V-I-Z-A-R-D. Pause the episode and have a look on Google for that. But if you're not bothered, then let me just tell you what will be staring back at you, literally, if you do that Google search. The simplest description for a vizard is that it's a black mask, which was worn by well-to-do ladies in society to protect themselves from the sun and to maintain an aura of mystery. In our narrative, these black masks have been repurposed by a shadowy figure, known only as the Black Prince. His agents wear these incredibly distinctive masks, which really did exist, crazy as it sounds, and they carry out his bidding. What does the Black Prince and his masks have to do with Matthew Locke? How will the Black Prince's role in the Thirty Years' War play out? This forms another plank to our story, and it helps to deepen the experience for fans of suspense, mystery, thriller, and historical fiction alike. It's also immensely fun to write. So you see, even with the more fictional elements of the story, I do my utmost to ground everything in historical fact, as far as I can. And when I saw the Vizard, let's just say I couldn't afford to ignore it as a plot device. Seriously, have a look at it and you'll see why. Those things are just so creepy. So you've had several clues now about what Matchlock and the Embassy will be about, but what about the series as a whole? How many books do I have planned and where do I see it all going? Is this just a flash in the pan, something that I talk about in really excited tones and then forget about in a few weeks. Well, here's where things get exciting and also where Zack puts on his his dreaming cap, so to speak. Because let me clarify, I really do see big things for this series, guys. I am fully invested in it, my wife is fully invested in it, and we're both so excited to see how you guys react to it. We can't wait to discuss the story and the very characters with you and to nerd out discussing different theories and symbols. I'll explain my plan for connecting with you all in a bit, but first, let's talk length. How long is Matchlock and the Embassy, and how long will the actual series itself be? Matchlock and the Embassy currently stands at 163,000 words, which is long for historical fiction by any standards, surprise, surprise. But the series itself, called A 30 Years' War Story, will be longer still. 
will be with Matchlock for the long haul, history friends. I've plotted out the series well into the future, and I have plans for Matthew Locke to stick around to fight alongside Gustavus Adolphus, to negotiate with Cardinal Richelieu, and even to be there during the Battle of Naseby in 1645, among other events. This is my love letter to the Thirty Years' War, you could say, but it's also my attempt to do for the Thirty Years' War what Bernard Cornwell did for the Napoleonic Wars. By that I mean, I want to get people interested in this fascinating, rewarding, and at times really gripping era of history. That's one of my major goals, and the best way to do that is by providing a window into the period, just like Cornwell did with Richard Sharp. Our Matthew Locke is less rough around the edges than Sharp. He's not a criminal vagabond, at least not yet, and he's well-trained and certainly privileged, but I am confident you'll come to like him, and you'll want to read on in his story for hearing how he gets on with Flynn, if nothing else. By now, you know I don't do things on a small level. The July Crisis Project took 29 episodes, the Korean War, 48, the Versailles Project took 85 episodes, and yeah, spoiler, the 30 Years War podcast series will take about that long as well. So when I tell you that I envision at least 24 novels in Matchlock's journey, you surely can't be that surprised. Hopefully, like me, you're really excited and eager to sink your teeth into it, but if you've come this far, you're surely wondering now how you might go about sinking your teeth into it. I mentioned the book will be ready by the 15th of September, but do you really have to wait that long? Well, no, you absolutely don't. And this is another reason why I'm so excited. You see, normally, when authors come from nowhere and release their beloved fiction series or historical fiction series or anything else, they have to start from scratch building an audience and persuading people after some time to trust in their ability to tell a story. But I already have you. What's more, I have this podcast, which I believe is the best platform for launching a historical fiction series that anyone could possibly ask for. You might notice me popping up in collaborations over the next while to get word of Matchlock out there, but make no mistake, you listening right now, you are essential to all of this. You will help superpower this launch so that when Matchlock and the Embassy does release to the world outside our walls on the 15th of September, an army of history friends are already prepared to spread the word. And by spread the word, I don't mean spread the hype. I mean actually nerd out to anyone who will listen about how much you, hopefully, enjoyed the book. Because if it wasn't obvious yet, you will get to read this first book, absolutely all of it, completely free of charge. An obvious caveat is that you'll be reading it electronically. My experience of posting out that 1,000-page monster for God or the Devil has taught me never to commit to a wide-scale posting of physical books ever again. But rest assured, with the technology we authors enjoy these days, this book will be easily readable on your usual device, whether that's your Kindle, your phone, your Nook, or anything else. Technology won't be holding us back, I can promise you that much. As far as when this book will be ready for you to read, that's a good question. As I said, it'll be available to buy on Wednesday the 15th of September, but I hope to have it ready for you guys at least a fortnight before then. More likely within the next week, as you're listening to this now. It's currently with my formatter guy, and he's really wonderful, and he's currently putting some lovely images and maps in there for you to see, so that following Matthew Locke's journey is more enjoyable. As soon as it's ready, I'll be letting you know here on the podcast and also in the Facebook group. Expect a one-off announcement episode, kind of like this one, to 
let you guys know. But how will you actually get your free book? Well, to get your free book, simply click on the link I'll provide in the Facebook group when the time comes. If you're not part of the Facebook group and you don't want to be, well, I'll be quite sad because you'll be missing out on all the discussions that we're going to have about it. But if you really, really hate Facebook, we can do a workaround. Email me with the subject A or C or Advanced Reader Copy and we'll go from there. But before you run off, allow me to introduce you to my new email for all things Matchlock related. Matchlock at WDFpodcast.com Sounds nice, doesn't it? I intend to retire WDFpodcast at Hotmail.com shortly, so expect a new email address for the podcast as well. Hopefully this new one won't be positively weighed down with awful spam. As much as I really love elephants, I really should address this elephant in the room. I've since left my publisher, I've bought back the rights for my old works, and I'm doing all of this solo. In other words, through something you might have heard of already, called self-publishing. With that being said, say hello to When Diplomacy Fails Publishing, which will be the vehicle for everything I publish from here onwards. Now, I could talk a long time about self-publishing, but the need to know is as follows. No, it's not something the creepy guy with a garage full of books does. Self-publishing is now a thriving industry, thanks largely to Amazon. Yes, say what you will about Jeff Bezos' empire, but thanks to Kindle Direct Publishing, people like me can now publish through Amazon and cut out the middleman completely. What this means is that whenever you buy my book off Amazon, the money is shared between Jeff Bezos and myself. And that's really it. I should clarify I won't be exclusive to Amazon at all. And by using another publishing service called Ingram Spark, you should be able to find Matchlock in brick and mortar stores too. There's online places I'll also be available. The usual suspects like Google Play, iBooks, or whatever Apple's calling their book service these days, and Kobo. For my lovely Canadian listeners, since Canadians make up more than 50% of Kobo's customer base, the more you know. Either way, whatever retailer you choose, it makes more money for independent authors like me, and the possibilities only improve from there. It should be said that there are independent authors out there making six figures or more. If you've ever been published by an actual publisher, you'll know how really difficult it is to make even a bare minimum of livable income. For the record, yeah, I actually lost money on For God or the Devil between my own noobishness, let's just say to be gentle, and my decision to post two kilogram books across the world during a worldwide pandemic at the cool price of $30 postage each. FYI, I posted the final set of these books last week, so yeah, thanks again for your guys' patience. If you think you're owed a book but you haven't got yours yet, please contact me in the usual places and we'll see what we can do. But yeah, I posted out 130 books, guys, and I can honestly say that while I adored signing books and wrapping them up with love and care for you, I positively loathed everything else in the process that came afterwards, including, of course, forking over that money. Hey, it was a learning experience, and I'm I'm not looking for a pity party or anything, but I am totally converted to self-publishing as the way forward. If you're still not convinced, though, and you'll only get your books from Penguin Random House on principle, then consider this. You're listening to a self-published podcast right now. If I can do everything that a podcast entails, I'm pretty sure I can handle books as well.
I just wanted to clarify all these little details because over the last half year or so I've been getting to grips with self-publishing and I've learned a lot. It's why I'm so excited about Matchlock because I really see its potential and I know that the royalties will be filling my pocket. Well, mine and my wife's pocket, just in case she's listening. It'll be more work and I'll have to promote my works by myself, but I've been doing that with the podcast for nearly a decade anyway, so I'm not really worried. It does mean I'll be dependent on you to help spread the word, and a large part of the reason why I'm making the first Matchlock free isn't just because I want us all to nerd out about it, it's also because you guys can then serve as ambassadors for Matchlock. Having read it, you can review the book in the usual places, most notably and probably most usefully in Amazon or in Goodreads or Google Play or Kobo or wherever you get your books from. If we time this right, and I know we will, then our launch will be a huge success and Matchlock will be propelled forward thanks to you. Just so you're aware, my goal is to be number one in the historical fiction category of Amazon, and this might sound insane, but I really do believe it's possible with you guys behind me. Just think of the possibilities. If we pull this off, then people outside When Diplomacy Fells' world will find Matchlock, they'll find me, and they'll also find this show. It's like a wonderful circle of history and nerdiness, and I really hope you'll be part of it and help make it happen. Again, I'm going to link to a blog post where I get into more detail about all this, but I think it's vital that you guys know how integral Matchlock is to my plans for the future. When the second book comes out, I hope you'll be eager enough to take part in this process again and get yourself an advanced reader copy too. Whatever happens, Matchlock will sink or swim based on your guys' enthusiasm. Of course, it could sink or swim based on its quality, but my wife and my dad both really loved the book and they couldn't possibly be biased sources, right? I've hoovered up all there is to know about publishing and writing fiction in the last half year because I want my debut novel to be perfect, or as close to perfect as it can possibly be. As a result, Matchlock and the Embassy has changed an awful lot since I first sat down to start writing it on the 24th of April this year, a date that is now seared into my memory. I've been pruning and fine-tuning right up to the 11th hour, but now it's finally time to take a step back and release this book into the wild. It's obviously exciting, but it's also pretty scary. You may know me as the History Podcast Guy. Let's just have some real talk here. But in my head, podcasting has always just been a symptom of my drive to write, to create and to share, and engage with like-minded fans and enthusiasts. It's why I loved lecturing and tutoring so much, and why I started the PhD in the first place. I was the guy in the back of the class who asked for more paper during the English exam because my stories just became monsters and nothing could stop them. I'm not ashamed to admit that writing a novel has always been my dream, ever since I was 10 and entered a -a write-a-book competition for kids with the flawless concept of, God, four quadruplets with superpowers and a younger sister called Fiona. Why was she called Fiona? Well, because Shrek had just came out and I was obsessed with Shrek as well. Oh God, why am I telling you all this? Now, again, it might seem out of left field, but it's actually been building in me for many years ever since I fell in love with Bernard Cornwell's ability to drop me in the era, and since I fell in love with the Thirty Years' War. And then I looked around and I was like, where is everyone? Don't you know how fascinating this all is? 
It really is incredible, and I hope this will become obvious in later novels, but just how much the timeline of the Thirty Years' War lends itself to being told as a dramatic saga, as our protagonist comes of age in a world riven by conflict, populated with dramatic reversals and victories that really move the story along organically. There's just so much to sink your teeth into when you have this freedom, and because of these possibilities, I think it's only logical to see this as the next logical step in my history career. And it's a logical progression, because getting people interested in history is my major passion, by giving them an accessible window into the era, and showing them that these people triumphed, suffered, endured, and lived, just as we do now. We may be more technologically advanced, but the story of the human condition hasn't changed all that much. If you're still not convinced, or you're thinking, Ugh, books, I want to listen to content, Zach, not read it, then I would ask you to give me a chance with Matchlock. Just like you gave me a chance with When Diplomacy Fails in the beginning, whenever that beginning was. If nothing else, it's, and I cringe mightily to say this, it's my 30th birthday in October, and the absolute bestest birthday present you can give me is just to read Matchlock, to press those few clicks, to suffer through technology for a few moments, and lose yourself thereafter in a 500-page story That'll be utterly unlike anything you've read before. Now, I was a bit apprehensive about reading any parts of Matchlock to you because, as I said, fiction is a bit of a step away from potting, or even a non-fiction audiobook. I am kind of scared I won't be able to do it justice, but then I decided I needed to get over myself and just share the thing I've been working on for so long. So here's what's going to happen now. Since you're still with me for your award, you get to hear me read the prologue of Matchlock and the Embassy to you guys. It should take about five minutes, and then hopefully you'll be impressed enough to join the Facebook group, if you're not there already, When Diplomacy Fails group, just so you're aware, and prepare yourself to read the full book once it's ready in a short while. I also need to mention something else. If you want to know how you can get access to all future Matchlock ebooks and all future audiobooks, then stay tuned after the extract to hear how Matchlock will be plugged into our Patreon. If you're not interested in the Patreon, and you'd rather purchase the books instead, physically, and I don't blame you because that gorgeous cover means it's a pretty sweet thing to have on your bookshelf, then can I just say a huge thanks again for humouring me. And for once more helping to make this Irish nerd's dream come true. I don't care how soppy this sounds, you guys are... You're honestly great, and before I get too emotional, I'm just going to start this prologue, okay? A small reminder, the Matchlock story takes place in the year 1622, but this prologue concerns an event that happens nine years beforehand in 1613. Trust me, the background is very important. Now, make sure you're sitting comfortably, and that you're ready for something... Very special indeed. The musket was ready to fire, but the boy could not pull the trigger. Even worse, his enemy knew it. They saw him flinching, hesitating. They sensed his weakness. They saw his soft frame, his flushed face. Perhaps they also saw his trembling arms. They could not know the war underway in the pit of his stomach, but there was more than enough evidence to suggest that they were not in any danger. But the boy was in danger. He knew that much. He'd had long enough to look them up and down and plan his rescue, but his plan had failed on its final hurdle. Judging by their attire, from their black clothes to the fearsome black masks, these men had seen and endured many sights worse 
than that of a boy clinging to a loaded musket. The boy remembered father's instructions. He remembered that the musket had been preloaded and prepared in case of an emergency. The circumstances certainly qualified as an emergency. Father had never permitted the boy to fire a musket, but he had seen one fired. The trigger merely needed to be pulled. How hard could it be? Yet the boy could not pull the trigger. Not even the urgent glances from mother or his brothers could egg him on. He could not pull it, and his bluff would only be tolerated for so long. His hand was frozen. His whole body was ice. He was fixated on the masked men who had entered the quaint garden at the back of his home. All six men were now focused on him. They had turned to him. They had hesitated at first. After all, he was only a boy, armed with a volatile weapon. But that hesitation had passed. Now they were creeping gradually towards him. Time was running out. One masked man stood by his brother, James. Such a stellar young man. Mother's favourite, without a doubt. But now James was a hostage. His face, normally full of colour, was drained and sweating. There was no explanation. No reasons given for shattering the joy of this family holiday. Instead, there were just six masked men. The standoff was interrupted with a stark raising of the stakes. The masked man next to James unsheathed his sword with a swift, shimmering movement. Even in the dark of the night, the light from the half-moon caused the steel to glisten. The steel was then pointed at James's throat. Put it down, boy, the masked man hissed. Put it down or I open his neck. But he couldn't. The boy couldn't move. He was stuck fast. His arms ached from the weight of the firearm. His legs ached from tensing in one place. His breathing came in fits. Sweat ran down his neck. A thin wisp of smoke rose above the lit piece of match cord, which confirmed that the musket was as ready as it would ever be. But the confirmation was irrelevant. The act of firing the weapon was impossible. And where to retreat? It was safer to stand still, to close his eyes, to pretend it was all a horrendous nightmare. Look at me, boy, the man barked. Put it down. I won't ask you again. The boy stared at him. The black mask covered his whole face, leaving only the whites of his eyes and the curve of his mouth actually visible. That was enough to paint a vivid picture. A picture of evil. The boy tried to speak. There was no air in his throat. Then there were two hands on him, one on his right shoulder, the other on his firearm. It was another masked man. This one was gentler, still a villain by virtue of his actions, but somehow less fierce, less malicious, like he was simply doing a job. The musket was lowered into the man's hands. The boy heaved a sigh of relief. His hands were empty. He was defenceless. He had done as the masked man had demanded but the sword was not lowered. Instead, the masked man let out a sickening chuckle, and with a flick of his wrist, arched the blade upwards through James's throat. In the time it took the boy to gasp, blood was flicked from his brother's throat and onto his face. A horrific gurgling sound escaped from James's throat as he collapsed to the grass. Mother screamed and broke free of the two men holding her and her younger son. She ran to James's side, sobbing, wailing, she grailed his head. The boy had only seen death once before, when grandmother had died in her bed. Her eyes looked the same as James's did now. Glassy, vacant, empty. The masked men seemed conflicted. The one who had taken his musket began shouting at the other who had taken James's life. The boy just stared at them both. Other masked men stood on the edges of their feet, unsure how to react. 
And then the killer locked eyes with the boy. He glared at him. For whatever reason, the boy held his gaze. Did the killer see this as a challenge? The boy felt no anger. He had not even cried out at the atrocity. He was numb. The killer made for him with lightning speed. He pushed past the objections of his masked peers. With a final step, he struck the boy with the middle of his right fist. The world seemed to stop. The boy's vision blurred, but he knew he was on the ground. The soft grass cushioned the fall. Was his nose broken? His eyes watered. But it was not over. The mask was on top of him, bearing down on him, striking him, again and again. What could be done? Nothing. There was no pain, perhaps. James had felt no pain either. The boy gasped. The limp hands he held up were swatted away. Resisting was useless. The killer hissed and spat at him as he struck, over and over again. And then the assault ended. Was it all over? Was he to join with James and Grandmother? No. He was still here. A tussle followed. Curses echoed into the dark night. But all he saw were stars. They seemed so bright. So much brighter than before. He could move his head. He angled it towards the commotion. The masks were arguing among themselves. But why? Had they not wanted James to die? But James was dead. Mother still cradled her favourite son's head. His open throat had spilled his life onto his chest. His face was ashen and drained of everything. The youngest son stood to the side, shivering. He had soiled himself. There were shouts in the distance, and then the masked men began to run. One of them paused for a brief moment, the one who had handled his musket. His head seemed to dance between the different sights. It locked on to James, and then to the boy. The boy's neck gave out, and he rested his head back on the grass. A voice he recognised loomed into his ears. Father. Father had come back. He had gone for a walk. He and mother had been fighting again. The boy had not been meant to hear it, but he had. The boy did not see father until he was over his face. Words were poured onto him, first concerned, then angry, like mumbled blurs of words. The boy could not respond, just like he could not fire the musket. The boy's eyelids fluttered. Perhaps when he woke, everything would be better. Perhaps he would dream of a better time, of a time without men in black masks, or of a time when he had been able to pull the trigger. A haunting wail filled his ears. Mother's despair had been unleashed for the whole province of Frisia to hear. The only escape from the nightmare was sleep, merciful sleep. And then there was darkness. The stars were gone. All was silent. But Matthew Locke knew that he had failed. All right. Well, if you're still with me, then great. I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope that you're eager for more Matchlock. Trust me, as soon as it's ready, I'll be letting you guys know when the ebook will be freely available from the Facebook group. As I said earlier, though, what I want to do now is explain how Matchlock will plug into the future of When Diplomacy Fails, more specifically with Patreon. Your time is valuable, and this episode is already going to be quite long, so I won't mince my words here. Matchlock will be offered as part of a wider effort by me to give as much value for money as possible if you sign up. For $5 a month, then, you'll get access to all future ebooks of Matchlock. For $12 a month, you'll get that, but you'll also get access to all future audiobooks, released as a full episode or in parts in the feed, or accessible via a different workaround if you prefer. $12 patrons, currently known as PhD Pals, will also be entered into the so-called 
ARC, or Advanced Reader Copy Team, which means they'll get to do what all of you will get to do for the first book and read it before it comes out. Depending on how this perk fares, I may extend it to the lower tiers as well, but my goal is to build a team of passionate, incredible, nerdy Matchlock fans who'll be hungry for the next instalment and eager to spread the word and offer reviews when the time comes. It is for this reason that when my PhD ends, I'll be renaming that $12 level tier as Matchlock Ambassadors. That should give you an idea of how much I believe in this venture, as I'm planning more than two years into the future. In fact, I'm planning beyond that. As I said, I want Matchlock to serve as an incentive and to give you as much value for money when you sign up as possible. With that goal in mind, you should know that all my future non-fiction books, including everything 19th century British and PhD related, everything Bismarck related, a study of the Treaty of Versailles, a study of warfare in the Age of Matchlock, Poland is not yet lost in book form, and the second edition of For God or the Devil, among other loads of things I have planned, all of these things will be available in ebook format for the $5 patrons and as audiobooks for the $12 patrons. This is why all these initiatives are so freaking exciting and why it's so great to be self-published, because you, yes you, will be able to access the most complete library of history content out there. Of course, this also includes the podcast extra series on Patreon. And if you'd like to know more about my plans for the $5 extra feed, make sure you listen to the second news episode that comes out in addition to this one, because there's just so much news I couldn't fit it all here. In that episode, you'll be told the details of why Poland is not yet lost, is going on a break after its 40th episode until my PhD is finished, but why you should be really excited anyway, because, and this, maybe this does deserve a drumroll, Britain Goes to War is returning. I'll go into more detail in that episode, so make sure you check it out. Therein, I also explain what my plan is for the next part of the Bismarck series, and when in my production timeline I envision Bismarck Triumph will be released. It should go without saying, I am sorry if you're desperate for more Bismarck or more Poland, but I really believe that Matchlock and these new ventures will bridge the gap until the PhD is done, and I have the mental and creative energy to delve into new research projects like those. Don't be too worried though, we'll continue to release new episodes of the 30 Years War every fortnight, and I may even release other special things along the way. All that being said, now that I'm entering the third year of the PhD in September, I really do have to prioritise my studies. Unfortunately, that means that some things will have to be paused for a while. Again, if you have any questions about what we've covered, or you're concerned about where your tier on Patreon fits into these new ventures, have a read of the blog post I've released recently to learn more, and which I'll link into the show notes. Can I just say, if you've made it this far, that Matchlock has been keeping me going for the last several months, when things really did get quite hard for me and for my wife, and I got a bit down with everything happening in our troubled world. I know from reading your reviews and seeing it in other places that When Diplomacy Fails has brought you joy and encouragement when you were yourself quite down. And I want to say, it is definitely a two-way street. You're the best, guys. So, thanks... For the millionth time, and hey, I hope to see you in that Facebook group where all the latest news items and exciting details will be discussed. Spoiler-free, of course. Finally, yeah, I really can't believe this is out in the open. I can finally talk about Matchlock openly, and now it's time for Matchlock to conquer the world, one ambassador at a time. So until we speak again, my name is Zach, this has been a very enormous announcement, and I'll be seeing you all 
Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.